The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text today comes from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and get to Ephesians chapter 4, what Jordan just read for us. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I have the privilege of serving as pastor here at Citizens. If you're new, want to welcome you. Um, yeah, excited to, to dive into God's Word together this evening. Uh, real quick, kind of family update that's really exciting that I want to celebrate together. Uh, some of you guys know about this, so it won't be any surprise. Others of you don't, and you're going to be really excited, I hope. Uh, we, this week, signed a lease on a new uh, kind of ministry center, is what I want to call it, slash office space. You can call it whatever you want, uh, but we're really excited. So we, uh, for a while now, have felt like the Lord was kind of pushing us in a direction to kind of get some stability here in the city, to have a little bit of a permanent spot at least throughout the week, that we could uh, call home, that we could identify as a part of our church that we could use for things like classes and counseling and care and just different uh, ministry opportunities that we have as a church throughout the week. And so uh, really excited. We uh, signed a uh, lease on a space right on the corner of Monroe and Sharon Amity. So right on the east side, right in Oakhurst, right where we feel like the Lord's calling us as a church. So we're going to keep meeting here on Sundays at five o'clock, and then we'll be there throughout the week for classes and different things. I uh, wanted to let you know that uh, for a couple reasons. One, to celebrate and to say thank you. So if you give as a part of this church with uh, sacrifice and generosity, you are a part of making this happen. This is just as much your home as a part of this church family as it is the place where the staff of our church work. And so we want you to view this as part of your home. We want you to, to if you're working remote, to come hang out during the week and work uh, from our offices to get to see this as a part of us doing ministry together, what we're about to talk about in this sermon. The second is we are kicking off the space 
space with uh, kind of a full day this coming Saturday. So the announcement's coming late. If you already have plans, sorry you have to cancel them to come do this. Um, but we just signed the lease, and we didn't want to say it because sometimes if you say it, you're going to jinx yourself. And so this Saturday, we're kicking it off. We're going to do a work day in the morning. So if you have cleaning skills or carpentry skills or just like to hang out and work a little bit, uh, we're going to be cleaning, painting, doing some light carpentry work, fixing up the space. And then that night at 5 o'clock, we're going to gather together for some prayer and worship. Uh, just a quick note for parents in the room, we're not going to provide childcare. Feel free to bring the kids with. It won't last longer than 45 minutes, I promise. And so we're going to uh, just celebrate God's faithfulness to our church together. We're going to pray that his spirit would be with us as we use this space as a tangible resource for uh, the good and the uh, outpouring of God's kingdom on the east side of Charlotte. So really, really excited. want to celebrate that with you. Uh, we'll be rolling some stuff out in some member emails this week to give you more info about that space. But really excited. That's worth clapping for. That's worth celebrating. Yeah. Really, really Really excited. So that's coming up. You can sign up for the workday on our website, and uh, we'd love to see you there for that night. Uh, let me pray for us, and then let's dive into God's word together. Father God, we are so grateful. And thank you for your provision and your hand over this church over the past year. It's like a gift of kindness from you that we uh, have a space where during the week we get to call home for a little bit. We're excited about that. God, thank you for the generous hearts of this church family. Thanks for your word. God, thanks for what we're going to talk about tonight. God, thanks for, for Paul and the church at Ephesus and what we have to learn. God, the gift of your word, you reveal yourself to us. Would you give us sensitive hearts? Give us hearts that are open to you, open to your spirit, open to what you want to do in our lives. We love you. Pray all in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's where I want to start us today before we get to Ephesians 4. It's a, a principle that is true about life and is going to help us kind of navigate through this sermon and you through life. This is just a free life tip as well as it's going to help us today. Our ability to enjoy, appreciate, or love something depends greatly on our expectations of it. Let me say that again, give you a chance to write it down. Our ability to enjoy, appreciate, or love something depends greatly on our expectations of it. Let me give you an example. So a few weeks ago, Lindsay and I got to travel back to Columbia for the weekend to see my family. And while we were there, we were really excited because my mom and dad watched Harper for the night, and we got to go on a date night to our favorite Columbia date spot called The Wig. If you've never been to the Wig, it's a dive bar right across the street from the South Carolina State House, and it is dive bar as dive bar can be. There's like eight tables in the place. You just feel dirty walking in, but you know that the food's going to be good, and so you go there anyway, and you live through it. And so we're super excited. We had not been there since March 6th of 2020. All right, okay, so March 6th happened. We went there as a date. Harper was born. COVID shut everything down, and then we moved to Charlotte, so we'd never been back, and so we were stoked. We were talking about it for months, no exaggeration, for months leading up to this trip. Now, because I was so excited, I had texted some friends that I knew had been back, and I said, hey, is it the same? Like, same menu? Is the food the same? All of that, and they had let me know, like, hey, it's the same menu, but some things have changed a little bit. Like, they changed food suppliers. The burgers are a little bit smaller. Like, I just want to give you that heads up. Now, I, being the great husband that I am, forgot to tell tell my wife this information. So we show up and she's talking all week and all day about this burger that she's going to get called the Burger Burger. It's spelled B-E-R, it's a thing. She's so excited. She's like, I'm going to get the burger. It's going to be awesome. And we sit down and she takes one bite of it. And I can tell that on her face is not as much joy as I was expecting from my wife. And I said, what's wrong? And she says, Tim, it's just not the same. 
It's just not the same. It's just, it's different. I just don't know what's up, what with it. See, I had going into it good expectations, proper expectations. I knew, hey, this burger is going to be good, but it might be a little different. She had no idea. Our ability to enjoy, appreciate, or love something depends greatly on our expectations of it. Here's why this matters for us today. We've come to a turning point in the book of Ephesians. So in chapters one through three, Paul has been outlining for us our gospel identity in Christ. Over and over again in the first three chapters, he's been telling us what is true about us if we're followers of Jesus, that we are sealed, that we are purchased, that we are adopted, that we're washed clean, that we're made new. And then he's going to turn the corner here for the last three chapters of the book, and he's going to basically do what we would call gospel identity applied. The next three chapters are going to get extremely practical for how we should live in light of what Christ has done for us. And he's going to start in this passage by addressing what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus to live in the context of a local church. Here's why this matters in light of that principle I gave us. All of us have expectations and assumptions about the church. Some of these expectations we're aware of and some we're not. Some were willing to voice and some were not. Some of these expectations that we have are biblical and wise and some are not. Let me give you some examples of some of those not-so-great expectations, things we bring into church with us. We might wrongly think things like, well, these people are Christians, so obviously they're never going to hurt me. Or, well, you know, they're Christians, and so relationships should just come naturally and instantly, and I should automatically just belong. Or maybe we think it should never be difficult to be part of a church and only ever life-giving and uplifting. Maybe we think my, my pastor should always agree with me, and he should only ever say things that validate me and my opinions. Or maybe we think things like, well, they need to play songs that align perfectly with my worship preference and style and lyrics, and it's got to move me emotionally in just the right way. I think for many of us, it's these unhelpful and unbiblical expectations that we let get in the way of us enjoying, appreciating, and being able to live in a church. When we come in with faulty expectations, we can find ourselves confused, disappointed, or frustrated when those expectations aren't met. And so we do one of a few things. Either we leave, we go find a church that we think will better meet those expectations. We try to force the church we're in through fighting and conflict to better meet our expectations. Or we just let things be. We grow internally bitter and resentful at all the ways the church isn't meeting our desires. But ironically, the one thing we don't usually do when it comes to those expectations is examine whether they're valid or not. We don't ever stop and go, okay, are my expectations that I'm putting on the church actually biblical? Are they actually right? Is the problem with this church or these churches or is the problem with what I'm expecting the church to be? Are my expectations valid? Are they biblical? Are they healthy? Are they wise? And so the nice version of what I want to do today as we look at Ephesians 4, where Paul outlines a healthy, mature church, is that I want to push back on four specific faulty expectations we have when it comes to what the church should be. I want to give you those expectations. I want to push back and show you how they're not helpful. And then I want to invite you to embrace reality over those false expectations. That's the nice version. The straightforward version is that some of you guys are going to be mad at me in our church in six months. I've done ministry long enough that right now I think most of you guys like me. A few of you, well, maybe. I think most of you guys like me. And I want you to keep liking me. And I want you to keep liking our church. And I want you to keep being a part of this if you're a part of our church family. And if you're not, I want you to start liking me and become a part of our church family. And so what I want to do is I want to get ahead of you stepping into my new office that we just signed a lease on because you're mad at me or you're mad at our church in six months because of expectations that you had that may not be biblical in the first place. So I'm going to say some things out of love and out of care as we look at the passage and wrestle with it together. Here we go, verse 1. 
Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he's going to talk about this idea of walking in a worthy manner throughout the next three chapters. Basically what he means is, you're a Christian, Jesus died for you, so live like it. Keep going, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you want to write in your Bible, underline that phrase, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Verse 4, there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I love what Paul says in verse 3. I think it's so fascinating. He says we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we talked about this in chapter 2, right? Christ himself is our peace. He has purchased our peace. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He has made the two one. He has given us peace with one another, which means in the church, you don't make unity happen. Right? You don't make peace happen. Jesus has already given us unity. He's already given us peace, now, in light of that piece, Paul says, hey, maintain it. Be eager. You can, you can translate that phrase, be diligent. Work hard to maintain the unity. This leads us to expectation number one. Everyone in the church should just get along. Everyone in the church should just get along. One of the expectations we have when it comes to church is that we should show up. We should instantly be best friends. Right? Everyone's got to like me. I'm going to like them. It's going to be one big happy family. It's all going to be great. We're going to get along. No one's going to get on my nerves. Everything's going to be wonderful. One big happy family forever. What happens when we have this expectation is that we don't know how to handle conflict. We think conflict is the enemy, and we think the absence of conflict equals a healthy church. So I've been counseling engaged couples for uh, several years now, and one of the things that I constantly uh, hear from them or, or perceive in our uh, premarital counseling sessions before they get married is that they think conflict is bad. They think conflict is an enemy. They think conflict is, if they have conflict in their relationship, they think their relationship isn't healthy. And one of the things I try to get them to rethink and to reframe for them is that conflict is not the enemy. Conflict is not the ultimate evil in their marriage to be avoided. Now, they have to ask some questions about their conflict. How much are they fighting? How are they fighting? What are they fighting about? But conflict is not this ultimate enemy to be avoided. In fact, conflict is often a necessity to actually develop true and flourishing unity. Conflict breeds intimacy, whereas avoidance leads to more disunity. So here's what happens. We're a bunch of sinners trying to be family together. That's a recipe for conflict. That's a recipe for things not going well. We have different backgrounds. We have different stories. We have different wirings. We have different ethnicities. We have different life stages. And then you add on top of that, the world, the flesh, and the devil are three enemies. And it is a recipe for conflict and disaster, which is why Paul urges the church be eager to maintain unity. And this leads us to reality number one. Unity takes work. Unity takes work. It takes work. It means having hard conversations you don't want to have. It means forgiving when you don't want to forgive. It means saying hard things in love that you don't want to say because you're more committed to long-term unity than you are to their immediate happiness. I experienced this a few weeks ago. 
A guy in our church called me a couple weeks ago, and he said, hey, I, just, I didn't want to call you about this. I, I'm a little uncertain, but I, let me, I just got to bring this up to you. And so he started talking about some decisions that I had made over the past couple of weeks that he felt like uh, just kind of undercut him, that he felt like kind of went against what we had been talking about and kind of the, the direction that I had sent him in uh, as a part of his ministry role. And so we were talking about this, and one of the things that really stuck out to me that he said at the end of the phone calls, he said, hey, I really didn't want to call you. Like, I knew if I called you and I had to address this, I knew that it was going to cause some relational tension. And I like you. And I think you like me. And I want to be friends. But he said, I knew that if I didn't address this, if I wasn't willing to have this little bit of conflict now, then I knew it was going to lead to longer-term bitterness and frustration and actually it was going to lead to more disunity if I wasn't willing to have a little bit of unsettling right now. Unity takes work. We have to be willing to say, I love you too much to not say the hard thing that's causing tension in our relationship, and that down the line, a year from now, is going to cause us to no longer want to be around each other. Unity takes work. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Paul writes, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Paul, in verses 1 through 6, talks about our unity, right? He says, one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one Father, one body, one family. And then he says, but, but hold up, but grace was given to each one of us. In other words, we're called to be in this thing together, and we're called to be unified, but we're not called to be a part of it in all the exact same way. He says there are different gifts given to each one of us. In other words, another way you could say this is we as a church are aiming for unity, not uniformity. We're aiming for unity, not uniformity. We want to be unified, but not all the same. He keeps going, verse 8. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. I love this. Paul's quoting from Psalm 68, 18. And he's likening Jesus to an Old Testament king. And Old Testament kings in that day, when they would go conquer another city or another nation, they would plunder the whole city and they would take back all of the goods of that city and give them out as gifts to the people of their nation or of their city or of their town. And Paul's saying that's what Jesus is doing here. When he won the victory, when he defeated Satan, sin, and death, he plundered the grave and brought us gifts of grace. In other words, Jesus is the conquering king. He's the true king. He's the actual king who rules over all. And then he gives us, his people, gifts, gifts of grace, spiritual gifts, gifts like serving and teaching and giving and hospitality and leadership and administration and all these gifts we see in Scripture, a variety of gifts for a variety of roles of service within the church. Think about it like a football team. Similar, like, there's too many sports analogies. I got one, football team. We just did the draft this week. There are different positions on the team, right? So if I ask you, hey, what's the most position, important position on a football team? You might say the quarterback. You need a great quarterback. The quarterback's the number one position. And I would say maybe, maybe that may be true. But if you have a team full of quarterbacks, you're not a very good football team, right? A quarterback shouldn't play linebacker. That'd be a bad idea for his health, right? A left tackle shouldn't play running back. There's different roles. The team has one goal. They have one aim. We want to win the game. But there's a variety of roles in which they have to play out. The same is true for us as a church, we have one mission. We have one goal. We want to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. That's it. What are we about as a church? We're about that one thing, Jesus-centered family on mission. But we have different roles that we play in that, which leads us to our second expectation. Here's the second expectation. My priorities should be everyone's priorities. My priorities should be everyone's priorities. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about gifts. Let me explain. Our gifts within the church 
often dictate our passions, which then often dictate our priorities. So if you're gifted in knowledge, right, you're often then going to be passionate about theology, about theological training, about knowledge-based discipleship, which then means that's going to be what you prioritize within the context of a local church. Let me give you another one. If you're gifted in hospitality and evangelism, often your passion is going to be with welcoming in outsiders, with serving the community, with reaching the lost, which means that's what you're going to prioritize in the context of a local church. If we were to take a straw poll right now of all of our members, and I asked you, what are your priorities? I would get probably a whole number of different answers, right? Mostly good. You might say, I want, a, I want a church where my kids can be discipled and taught about Jesus. I want a place that creates a worship environment where God is glorified. I want a church that operates like a family. I want to belong here. I want to be known here. Maybe you'd say, I, I want a church that preaches the deep truths of Scripture. And listen, none of these are bad desires. I would argue that all of those desires are good, and they're good things to want, and they're good things to aim for. There's so much that the Bible calls us to deeply care about as a church. The problem is when we elevate our desires and our priorities as being what is ultimate over everybody else's. When we begin to look down on others who don't prioritize what we prioritize, who don't do what we want think they should do, who don't champion our cause like we want it to be championed. And so we begin to think things like, well, this church is unhealthy because they don't seem to care at all about this thing that I care the most about. We begin to think things like, well, this leadership is foolish because they don't give money to this cause that I think needs to be the number one cause. And listen, there's a ton for us as a church to care about, but here's the reality. Number two, God gives different people different gifts. God gives different people different gifts. Listen, there's a lot that the Bible tells our church to care about. James 1.27, we're told to care for orphans and widows. Colossians 4.2, we're told to be a praying church. 2 Timothy 4, we're, we're told to care about the preaching of the word of God. Romans 10, we're supposed to send missionaries to the nations. Acts 2, we're supposed to take care of each other as a family. And the list goes on and on and on. And we as followers of Jesus have to care about these things. All right, you cannot be a follower of Jesus and be apathetic about orphans. You just can't. Point blank. You can't be a follower of Jesus and not care about taking the gospel to the nations. You just can't. But here's the thing. God in his kindness gives unique and specific deeper burdens and passions and corresponding gifts to different people within the church. Here's what that means. All of us are called to care for orphans. Some of us are called to adopt. All of us are called to care about the taking of the gospel to the nations. Some of us are called to go. All of us are supposed to care about having a hospitable church where people are welcomed in when they're broken and hurting and lost. Some of us are called to lead the way in that. Different gifts, different priorities for the building up of the church. Not looking down on those who care differently than us. Not looking down on those who have different passions, different priorities, but saying, hey, how can their passions and their priorities and my passions and my priorities help us as a church flourish in all of the many, many things that God calls our church to care about? Let's keep going. Verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So Paul goes into it aside. It's in parentheses in your Bible. Scholars differ on what it means. It probably means he took on flesh and came down to earth. We don't know. We'll maybe talk about it in the podcast. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So Paul goes on to mention, okay, God gives gifts by his grace, and then he mentions specific gifts, specific leadership roles within the church. And we could talk for hours about, do these gifts still exist? What are these roles? How do they play themselves out? What does it mean? Do we still have apostles? All of that. But I think the point is verse 12. He says, he gives these leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
for building up the body of Christ. This leads to our third expectation. Ministry is something church leaders do. Ministry is something church leaders do. I wanted to include not just say pastors here, because I think in our church context and how we do church, you could also be guilty of putting this expectation on your community group leaders or on your Sunday team directors, right? Ministry is something church leaders do. If I can continue the football analogy, there can be a temptation to think about church like a sport. Those in leadership are the athletes, which means every Sunday is like a game, and you guys show up, you pay your offering price of admission to watch me and Jacob and whoever else is up here lead you guys and do our thing. You guys either enjoy it or don't enjoy it. You cheer us on or you sit there and stare like you're doing right now. And then the rest of the week, you go about your life as normal. Everything was good until you come back next week and we do the whole thing over again. Because of that, there are plenty who are trying to put on the best show possible on Sunday. Right? If we're consumers, if our goal is to attend, to show up, to sit in a seat, and to give our attendants money, then the goal right, is to create the best show possible. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this reality, ministry is something we all do. Ministry is something we all do. Look back at verse 11 and 12 again. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. He gives leaders in the church not to do ministry, but to equip the saints, God's people, the church for the work of ministry, which means, if anything, my job is not to do ministry. Some of you are like, why are we paying you? My job is not to do ministry. If our church is functioning biblically, my job is to do less ministry and to get you guys to do more ministry. That's what Paul invites us to in Ephesians 4. If I'm stepping into what God calls me to step into and you're stepping into what God calls you to step into, that means you do more ministry and I do more equipping you for ministry, which means that you learn to care for each other. You learn to disciple each other. You learn to preach the hard truths of Scripture to each other. You learn to evangelize with to, and to each other. It actually impacts, in case you're wondering, what we do on Sundays. So our job on Sundays is not to entertain you. Some of you are like, good, because you're doing a bad job. <laughs> our job on Sundays is not to entertain you. Our job on Sundays is to equip you, to teach you what it means to follow Jesus, to come together and to point you to Christ and the majesty of the gospel, who he is, that he reigns forever, that he is ruling and reigning, that he defeated Satan's sin and death, to charge you from the scriptures, to teach you how to live life as a disciple to Jesus, and to send you back out into the world to live life six days and 22 hours that you're not in this building. That's our goal, not to do ministry, to equip you guys. That's why we gather together on Sundays. We always have a lens of what are we doing outside of here? What's the goal? What's the purpose? Ministry is something we all do, which leads us to the last part of this, verse 13. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I love the phrasing that Paul uses. He says, until we all attain to the unity, we are to grow up the whole body, every joint, each part. And then he ends with saying, so that the body builds itself up in love. Listen, the goal of your Christian life is maturity. 
You're like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What's the aim? What's the goal? The goal is maturity. What does it mean to be mature? It means to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Everything we talked about last week. Everything we prayed for. That's the goal. That's the direction. That's the aim that we're headed, that we would be rooted and established, not tossed to and fro by every new type of philosophy and thought of the world, not to be pulled in all these different directions by temptation and false promises of false saviors, but to be mature and rooted. However, a short-sighted view of this leads to a fourth expectation, and that's this. My growth is other people's responsibility. My growth is other people's responsibility. I think we're drawn into a consumeristic mindset towards church, not just by the professionalization of ministry, not just by we're going to pay some professionals to do the work, but also by a self-serving view of church. So we filter our participation or lack thereof in a church or in a community group through questions like, who can pour into me? Who can help me grow? Who can disciple me? Who can mentor me? I'm supposed to grow into maturity as a Christian. Who's going to help me? And listen, these in and of themselves are not bad questions. I would argue that a lot of them, most of them are good questions. You should be asking these questions, but the problem is when we stop there. These questions only paint a a part of the reality Paul says, and that's this, everybody growing is everybody's job. Everybody growing is everybody's job. Listen, our church should be a place where you're discipled and you disciple. Our church should be a place where you receive care and you learn to care for others. Our church should be a place where you grow and you mature in your knowledge of God and you help others grow and mature into their knowledge of God. Which means what you're learning, how Christ is shaping you and forming you shouldn't just end with you. Remember what Cole talked about a few weeks ago. Grace comes to you and it goes through you. This affects, impacts how you show up to different parts or not show up to different parts of our church. This impacts how you show up to a Sunday gathering. Right? If, you, if you think, okay, everybody growing is everybody's job, that's going to affect whether or not you show up and how you show up to this time on Sundays. Because right? if you think, okay, everybody growing is everybody's job, then you're going to show up on Sundays early, eyes up, ready to welcome not only new folks, but also to welcome and encourage your church family. To say, hey, other people that I love, that I'm covenanted to in the body of Christ are coming in this Sunday, and I might have no idea what they went through over the past six days. So I'm going to come in, eyes up, going, everybody growing is everybody's job, and I'm going to take ownership over their encouragement. And so I'm looking. Who can I encourage? Who can I bless? Who can I pray for? Who can I serve? I'm here 10, 15, 20 minutes early, and I'm sitting, and I'm standing, and I'm saying, okay, who's going to come in, new or not? How can I welcome them? How can I love them? How can I worship in such a way that encourages them? This shows up and how you, this impacts how you show up to your community group or not show up to your community group. Listen, if your only question for how you live in community to others is if it's only benefiting you, that's the easiest ticket to bounce. Because as soon as it no longer ceases to serve that function, as soon as it ceases to serve that function, you're out. Right? Oh, this isn't serving me anymore. It's not growing anymore. I can get more growth over here. This just isn't helping, so I'm out. Instead of going, no, everybody growing is everybody's job. Let me tell you a really easy way to put that part into practice this week. When you show up to group and who's ever leading sermon discussion, ask a question. That question is not just for you to ponder quietly. Some of y'all afraid to amen that. It's not just for you to think about, oh, that's a really good question. All right, what's the Lord teaching me? That's great. Mm, Awesome. I'm going to internalize it. I'm good. Great. That question is for you to actually share the encouragement the Spirit is putting on your heart such that other people would actually be benefited from it and built up towards maturity. 
You have no idea how that thought that the Spirit impresses on you from God's Word or from the sermon, if you share it, might actually be a blessing and be that thing the person across the circle actually needed to hear in that moment. Some of y'all need to start having your leader tell you you talk too much. Most of us probably need our leader to tell us, hey, you're sharing too much. Let's have those problems in our group. Yeah, but I got encouragement. I'm here for the group. I'm here to build them up. I'm here to serve them. So I'm going to share what the Lord's putting on my heart. I'm going to share how he's speaking to me through this sermon because I'm not just here for me. I'm here for them. One other way, this is going to impact how you live life six days out of the week, that you're not at group and you're not at church. Here's what I mean by that. A self-serving posture, an expectation that other people helping you grow is their responsibility is going to affect how you live in community day in and day out, which means it's going to shift you from a posture of, well, no one in my church is texting me. No one in my church is is welcoming me in. No one is praying for me. No one is encouraging me to flip it and go, okay, I need to do that for other people. How can I send the encouraging text message? How can I pray? How can I let them know what's going on? Hey, enough about me. Okay, no one's reaching out to me. I'm sorry. That's bad. Reach out to somebody. More than that, say, hey, I wish somebody would reach out to me. That's a good thing to desire. And while you're waiting for someone to encourage you, encourage someone else. Text someone else. Reach out to someone else. Pray for someone else. Say, hey, they're not welcoming me in. I'm going to go ahead and do the initiating. I'm going to welcome them in. I'm going to go out of my way. Everybody growing is everybody's job. We're in this together, pushing towards maturity. We kind of head us towards the close. If I could summarize everything we're talking about, it would be this. Have an own it mentality when it comes to our church. Have an own it mentality. Own the unity Own your gifts, your passions, and priorities. Own the ministry of our church. Own the spiritual health of those around you. Be committed. This is a beautiful thing. This is something I want to celebrate. 100% of our members serve in some capacity in our church. That's awesome, and that is worth celebrating, and that's something we're going to fight really hard for to continue to ask. 100% of our members serve at least in some capacity within our church. So here's the next step of invitation I'm asking you to take. Have an entrepreneurial mindset towards your area of ministry. Let me tell you what that means. When you look at, okay, I'm on host team, I'm on worship team, I'm on production, I'm on Serve Charlotte, I'm on whatever it may be, I want you to stop just asking, what do I need to do to kind of do my role and do that, but also have eyes up and go, how can I make it better? How can I own the ministry of this church? How can I step forward? When I'm showing up to group, I'm not just showing up sitting, I'm showing up active. I'll give you a a really beautiful, tangible picture of this. It's our new prayer team. This is the team that that leads our our church in prayer before the gathering. meet at 415 if you want to come pray with us. They're the people that stand in the back ready to pray for you after each sermon. That came not from me. That came from people in our church. People in our church who said, hey, I see that I want our church to grow in prayer. I want our church to be more of a praying church. I want us to step forward and seek the Lord in prayer together. And so they said, hey, this is a problem. This is how we want to fix it. We want to do this. We want to do this. We got together. We had a meeting. They recruited their volunteers. They set up all the systems. And now they're rocking and rolling and leading us towards being a church that seeks the Lord in prayer. That's beautiful. I want more stories like that. Hey, this is what I prioritize. And I'm not going to get bitter that right now it's not a priority in our church. I'm going to seek out the leadership. I'm going to see what I can do. I'm going to see what my gifts are. And I'm going to help our church take a step forward forward because the work of ministry is not a professionalization thing. It's a me thing. And I'm going to own it. I'm going to step forward. But here's the deal. In order to do that, you have to kill the expectations you have of what you expect a perfect church to be. You have to. I was reading an article this week. I didn't actually read it. I read the title and it was a convicting enough. And so I thought I'd pass that convicting <laughs> off to you. Here's what the article was titled. It said, how the fictional church in your head is killing the real church in front of you. 
Y'all, we all, myself included, have a fictional church that we are building in our head. We have a fictional group that we've built in our heads. We have a fictional community that we've built in our heads. It was the, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer that said the greatest enemy to your actual community right in front of you is the fake community you've built in your head. Because the fake community in your head is not full of sinners. And the church you're sitting in right now is. The church you've built in your head is perfect and does everything right, and the church that you're sitting in right now does not. The pastor you've built in your head says all the right things in all the most compelling ways that encourage but convict in just the right amount. And the pastor standing in front of you right now does not. Your community group leader is always present and available. The one, fictional one in your head is always 100% available whenever you need them at the drop of the hat with the right word to say and the right prayer to offer. And the real community group leader who leads you on Tuesday, Wednesdays, or Thursdays are not. That's okay. Because by God's grace, he's forming us and he's shaping us as a church and he's leading us somewhere. Don't let the fictional church in your head kill God's gift of his real, tangible, beautiful, sinful, but in process towards sanctification bride. Just don't. Let me end here with some gospel encouragement and then we'll pray and take communion. Verse 15, let's go back to Christ. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Listen, the whole thing we do with church is about him. It's about Jesus. All of this is about him. It's the first thing in our vision statement for a reason. We are Jesus-centered. We are centered on Jesus. And here's the thing I want to keep coming back to is that Jesus loves the church way more than we will ever love the church. Like, I don't fully get, I get it a little bit, but I don't fully get people who are on this train of like, I like Jesus, I don't like the church, because Jesus died for the church. Jesus shed his blood for the church. Jesus gave up his body for the church. Jesus took on flesh and suffered and faced every temptation, yet was without sin and went to the cross for the church. And so if Jesus died for this broken thing that we're trying to be, how much does he love it? How much does he care about it? How much does he care about it living in unity? How much does he care about God's people dwelling together, building themselves up in love, pushing forward the mission of God in wherever he has put them? Jesus loves the church. He died for the church. He rules and reigns over the church. It's his, and it's about him. And so the invitation, if you're a part of this church family, is to step in and own the mission of God as he's put you here in this local expression. If you're not a member of this church, you're welcome to join. We want you to find somewhere. Be a part somewhere of a local expression pushing forward the kingdom of God that's preaching Christ and holding him up as most important. That's what we celebrate every Sunday when we gather. We take communion together. You'll have a little cup on your seats, a little wafer, a little juice. So a wafer representing the body of Jesus, juice representing the blood of Jesus, that he gave his body and he gave his blood that he is the head of the church, that he is ruling and reigning over not a fictional church in our minds, not a perfect church, but a blood-bought church. And so we're going to take communion in just a second. We're going to celebrate Jesus together. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, this is one of the only parts of our church we'd ask you not to participate in, simply because you'd be saying something is true about you that's just not yet, but rather than take communion, we invite you to take Christ, to believe in the head of the church, to believe that his body and blood was shed for you so that you could have forgiveness of all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your guilt, and be brought back into a perfect relationship with God. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing. We're going to celebrate Jesus. We're going to worship together with our broken and beautiful and sinful brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're going to celebrate King Jesus together. Let me pray. We're going to take communion and worship. God, we love you. God, we're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the cross. 
God, thanks that you're more committed to us being a family than we are. Thanks that you're more committed to our maturity than we are. God, thanks that you're more committed to our growth towards each other and towards you than we are. God, that's the best news we have because that means that we have the Spirit in us working. And we need your help. And unity takes work. Ministry is draining. The mission feels like it never ends. God, we need your help. Would you help us to rest in the good news of the gospel? That Christ came, that he lived the perfect life we can't and will not and could not live. That he died the death we and our sins deserved. And yet he didn't stay dead. He got up out of the grave as a king returns with spoils. And he plundered the grave. And he rules and he reigns and he lives forever. Help us to be a church that never misses Jesus move away from our first love, that we want to move away from the goodness of the gospel, that we would live in it deeper, that we would swim in it deeper. God, we need your help. Would you kill the fictional churches in our head? Would you kill these false expectations that are not of you, that get in the way of us actually experiencing the beauty of Christ, the beauty of his bride, the beauty of your family? We need your help. God, we love you. Prolix in Jesus' name. Amen.